0: These are The Greek Myth Files, a close look into the Greek mythical story world, its gods, its heroes, and its monstrous others. Each episode features a story or broader topic that we dig into, analyze, and try to explain in a smart but accessible way. They are brought to you by the Classics Program at the University of New Hampshire and its crack team of undergraduates. I'm your host, Professor Scott Smith. Welcome to a new episode of The Greek Myth Files. This is the second episode of Season 3 which takes as its subject the Black Sea, where we explore some myths that are set in the distant parts of the Greek world. A new feature of our podcast this season will be visual aids that will help listeners follow along the journeys of the Greek heroes. Just go to the website manto-myth.org backslash gmf, or just go to manto-myth.org and follow the links to the Greek myth files. There, you will find a map of the Black Sea and the locations of the myths we're exploring, as well as original artwork by an outstanding student artist. In today's episode, we're going to use the recent release of Wonder Woman 1984 to propel us to think about the ancient Amazons, said to live in various locations, but most often in a place called Themyscira, along the Thermodon River on the southern coast of the Black Sea in the eastern part of modern-day Turkey. That's a lot. Just go see the map. At the end of the episode we'll think about whether the myths of the amazons reflect a real race of women warriors as has been argued in a relatively recent and provocative book so sit back and relax for another episode of the greek myth files when i was just starting out as an assistant professor my college roommate visited and suggested that we go see the movie troy which had just come out we got ready drove to the movie theater And just as we were about to get into the entrance, he turned to me and said that I had to, quote, take off my classics professor hat before we watched the movie. Ma, whatever do you mean? I asked him quizzically in my best Doc Holliday played by Val Kilmer voice. He stared right at me and said, come on, you know that they're going to take lots of liberties with the real story. Of course I knew, and part of me really did get worked up about the ways Hollywood plays fast and loose with the stories that the ancient Greeks passed down to us. On the other hand, I also knew just how fast and loose the ancient Greeks themselves played with those same stories. So I was partly primed to give Hollywood the benefit of the doubt. Now, I won't go into detail about my response to that movie, but I'll share that I kind of liked it. Despite some rather grimace inducing moments like Perseus killing Agamemnon and the stupid but apparently required reference to Rome's future in the made-up Sword of Troy that Paris randomly hands to some kid named Aeneas who's escaping Troy. Also, Sparta's not a seaside town with nice views of the open water, but very much landlocked. But whatever. Anyways, I try to be open-minded about a medium that has to have wide mass appeal for maximum economic success, but when I recently saw Wonder Woman 1984 and then went back and watched its 2017 predecessor again I pulled my classics professor hat not off but down tightly about my ears to think about the myth making behind the most popular female superhero of all time I have mixed feelings about the movies themselves I love the first Wonder Woman movie and I think that Gal Gadot and Chris Pine were a perfect Diana Prince and Steve Trevor plus Diana Prince can read Sumerian that's a huge plus as for the second movie While Diana shows off her Latin chops, I echo the criticisms about the rather incoherent and uncompelling plot, the creepy return of Steve Trevor in Another Man's Body, and the poor development of Kristen Wigg's character, and I just don't know what to say about the cheetah's costume. Be that as it may, this is a podcast about myth, so let's get down to business and our two main topics for the day. First, the way in which the comics and movies draw on classical Greek myth for the origin stories of Wonder Woman, specifically the famous Amazons. Then we'll turn to the Amazons in the ancient Greek mythical story world itself and give a few important highlights about the ways that the Greeks fashioned their myths about a female race of warriors. But first, in Greek myth-files fashion, we'll start with a story, taken from the script of the 2017 blockbuster Wonder Woman. It's the backstory of why the Amazons live on an island in the middle of the ocean called Paradise Island in the comic strips, but Themyscira in the movie. Hippolyta the Queen and her sister Antiope jointly tell Diana a story, or rather a myth, about their past.
1: Diana, you are the most precious thing in the world to me. I wished for you so much, so I sculpted you from clay myself and begged Zeus to give you life.
2: You've told me this story.
1: Which is why tonight I'll tell you a new one. The story of our people and my days of battle. Yes. So you will finally understand why war is nothing to hope for. Long ago, when time was new and all of history was still a dream, the gods ruled the earth, Zeus king among them, Zeus created beings over which the gods would rule. Beings born in his image, fair and good, strong and passionate. He called his creation man, and mankind was good. But Zeus's son grew envious of mankind and sought to corrupt his father's creation. This was Ares, god of war. Ares poisoned men's hearts with jealousy and suspicion. He turned them against one another, and war ravaged the earth. So, the gods created us, the Amazons, to influence men's hearts with love and restore peace to the earth. And for a brief time,
3: there was peace. But it did not last. Your mother, the Amazon Queen, led a revolt that freed us all from enslavement. When Zeus led the gods to our defense, Ares killed them one by one until only Zeus himself remained.
1: Zeus used the last of his power to stop Ares, striking such a blow the god of war was forced to retreat. But Zeus knew that one day Ares might return to finish his mission an endless war where mankind would finally destroy themselves and us with them. With his dying breath, Zeus created this island to hide us from the outside world, somewhere Ares could not find us. And all has been quiet ever since. We give thanks to the gods for giving us this paradise.
0: Long before Gal Gadot stepped into the role of Wonder Woman, the most famous superhero of all time had been depicted in a variety of ways, adapting to the times and inspiration of the creators that took hold of the character. The history of the creation of Wonder Woman in the 1940s is interesting in and of itself, and it has ties not only to the mythical stories of the past but to the feminist movement of the present. Following on the footsteps of Superman and the Batman as he was called, as successful as comic heroes, There appeared in 1941, in the middle of World War II, a new superhero, Wonder Woman, a female fighter who was super athletic, smart, graceful, and preternaturally strong, with a couple of cool tools at her disposal, including an invisible jet, a golden lasso, and dynamite Mandalorian-style wristbands to deflect bullets and other projectiles. For modern listeners, such a representation may not be shocking, even if still welcome. After all, powerful, talented, and athletic women can already be found on TV, on magazine covers, taking part in military operations, and in sports arenas all across the country. Of course, we're a long way off from achieving equality, and the emergence of the blockbuster superhero movie with its female lead was a long time in coming, but I think it's safe to say that, in 1941, Wonder Woman was a much starker figure than even today. The creator of Wonder Woman was a man by the name of William Moulton Marston who was Harvard-educated with advanced degrees in both law and psychology, and he was instrumental in the invention of the polygraph test. Although his theories about psychology were based on rather reductive ideas about sex and gender, he conceived of Wonder Woman, at least in part, as a feminist icon that symbolized the growth of the power of women. Perhaps prompted by his wife, Sadie Elizabeth Holloway, and his live-in concubine, Olive Byrne, themselves dedicated feminists and birth control advocates Marston articulated his own opinion in 1937, some three or four years before Wonder Woman first appeared, that women, because of their psychological makeup, were poised to take over rule of the country, both politically and economically, within 100 years. To articulate his point about an emergent matriarchy in America, Marston evoked another such image of women rulers from the mythical past, that of the Amazons, the race of women warriors that faced off against several Greek heroes. It is against this backdrop that we can see the original origin story of Wonder Woman in 1941. I say original because successive writers have changed and adapted her background countless times with some radical variations. In Marston's original, which I was glad to see was generally followed in the 2017 movie, Diana, later Wonder Woman, was just one among a whole race of Amazons who lived on a utopian island blessed with lush vegetation and natural resources, which allowed the women to advance both in intellect and in technology. When American pilot Steve Trevor crash lands on the island, it is not a foregone conclusion that Diana would escort him back. Any of the Amazons could have done so, becoming Wonder Woman in the process. In fact, that's the whole point. It's not just that there happens to be a single extraordinary female that can accomplish great things. It's the structure of their society based on female rule that allows for a truly gifted race of beings one that can bring similar success to the broader world as well. So when Wonder Woman fights against injustice, evil, and moral corruption, she is showing the world what it might be like if women were in charge. Well, not Kristen Wiig. And I think we should all be quite thankful that Marston's original name, Suprema the Wonder Woman, never saw the light of day. Anyway, Marston drew extensively on Greek mythology for the backstory, which is meant to explain why the Amazons live on a secret island in the middle of nowhere. As we learned from an early issue of All-Star Comics number 8 from December 1941, once upon a time, the great Greek hero Heracles had imprisoned the Amazons. But after they broke free, they decided to leave the world that they knew and, led by Aphrodite, came to the island known as Paradise Island. There, Hippolyta the Queen would be immortal so long as she kept her magic war belt. And in her desire for a child, she sculpted Diana out of clay, and begged the gods to give her life, and they did just that. There's a lot here that Marston takes from Greek myth-making generally. Most crucially, Heracles was indeed sent to fetch Hippolyta's zoster, in Greek, war belt, for his ninth labor out of twelve. This Greek term is sometimes translated as girdle, which it can mean in later Greek, but it is here most certainly a war belt. As Apollodorus, our best ancient overview of Greek myth tells us, the ninth labor Eurystheus
2: commanded Heracles to perform was to bring the war belt of Hippolyta. She was the queen of the Amazons, who used to dwell near the river Thermodon, a tribe great in war. For they cultivated a manly spirit. Whenever they had sex and gave birth, they raised the female children. They would constrict their right breast so that those would not interfere with throwing a javelin, but allowed their left breast to grow so that they could breastfeed. Hippolyta had Ares' war belt, a symbol of her preeminence over all the Amazons. Heracles sailed to the harbor in Themyscira, and Hippolyta came to him. After she asked why he had come and promised to give him the war belt, Hera made herself look like one of the Amazons and incited them to fight the intruder. Under arms, they rode on horseback down to the ship, and when Heracles saw that they were armed, he thought that this was the result of some treachery. He killed Hippolyte and took the belt, then fought off the rest, sailed
0: away, and landed at Troy. Although drawing on the myth of Heracles, Marston shifted the story to emphasize the women breaking free of enslavement, in tune with his feminist message of breaking free of the patriarchy. But Marston also draws on other mythical motifs, in particular the names. Diana is the Roman goddess of the hunt, a frightening deity who is swift and deadly, but also on the cusp of womanhood. Hippolyta, Queen of the Amazons, is drawn directly from the Heracles myth itself. And finally, in the creation of Diana from Clay, Marson is drawing on two compatible stories from the mythical period. First, the creation of the first woman, Pandora, by the gods out of Earth. And second, the version of the creation of the first man from Earth by Prometheus, one of the early gods and the champion of humankind. Regarding the first, you may remember that in some versions of the myth of Pandora, her name was explained that she got gifts Dora, from all Pan, the gods. It's probably this that prompted later versions of Wonder Woman's origin story to claim that she was given gifts by the Greek gods. Aphrodite, grace and beauty, Athena smarts, Artemis' keenness, Hermes' wing and sandals, and Hestia, the lasso of truth forged from Gaia's bones. And right there, Hestia has a bigger role in myth than in all of Greek myth combined. The earliest mentions we have about Amazons in Greek myth occur in Homer's Iliad, who only refers to these warrior women offhandedly. The first is when Priam, the king of Troy, recalls the throngs of fighters along the Sangarios River, which flows to the region just east of Troy. We put it on the map available to you at mantomyth.org. In the second passage, a strange middle of the battle speech, the Trojan ally Glaucus narrates, while the war rages around him, the great deeds of his grandfather, Bellerophon. As it happens, Bellerophon was Greek, but through the machinations of a queen whose advances he rejected, he was shipped off to Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, to the queen's father, who then sends him on a series of missions to get him killed. The last of these was against the Amazons. In both of these passages, the Amazons are women who are described with the Greek feminine adjective form antianeirae, which means something like a match for men. These offhanded references, without further elaboration, also suggest that Homer's audience was probably familiar with stories of fighting women. In other words, it appears that the Amazons were already part of the oral mythical tradition, and Homer was just tapping into it. We also happen to find Amazons depicted on early pottery as well. In most accounts of the Amazons, we do not get much more than the Bare Bones. They are formidable foes, very capable of fighting men, and even though they invariably lose to the heroes, they are always worthy adversaries. As it happens, even though the Greeks refer to a nation of such women, Amazons very infrequently are the subject of their own myths, their own stories, but they are merely props for the deeds of other Greek heroes, male heroes, who meet them in distant lands and always win when they meet them in battle. As we noted above, Bellerophon meets them near Lycia and conquers them, while Heracles sails to their homeland in themiscyra and overcomes them there. In another version, the Amazons, led by another queen, Penthesilea, come to help the Trojans, only to face off against Achilles, who quickly dispatches them as he had Hector, Memnon, and many others. Even the Athenian hero Theseus, whose feats are frequently modeled on those of Heracles, goes on an expedition to Themiscyra and returns with an Amazon for a wife, usually named Antiope, By whom he fathers Hippolytus. In later versions, Theseus is said to have gone with Heracles on his quest, where either he wins Antiope or she falls for him during the battle. At any rate, we have many stories where the Amazons, either to win Antiope back or to punish her for hooking up with a Greek, actually march and attack Athens, only to be repulsed by Greek heroes as they defend the city, as Antiope herself is sometimes said to do as well. One of the points to be emphasized here is that nowhere in these particular myths are the Amazons depicted as man hating. More important is their military prowess that proves them to be worthy adversaries for the more awesome Greek heroes. Another thing to note about the Amazons is that they, like other foils for heroes, are located in distant lands on the edges of the Greek world. Just like the Gorgons who lived in an unknown, faraway land, prompting Perseus to go on a long search for them. The Amazons live in areas at the edges of the known world. In Troy, they are just beyond the horizon, marshaling their forces in Phrygia, the next region over, but they had come from even further away. It's similar also in the case of Bellerophon, who was sent to the far off land of Lycia to battle not only the feared hybrid monster, the Chimera, but also other exotic peoples like the obscure Solomoi and the Amazons. And the edges of the known world are just where you might find such a group of people that did not match the norms and expectations of Greek culture, which was notoriously male dominated. We do not have time to delve into that topic, but suffice it to say that a race of women fighters would have struck the Greeks as distinctly weird and very un-Greek-like. Now, the edges of the known world are not static, and as more Greeks became conscious of the world, the Amazons seem to have moved with those boundaries. As we mentioned earlier, our earliest indications of their location are in Asia Minor, just beyond the Greek horizon. And eventually one of the areas the Greeks settled on for the location of the Amazons was on the plain of Themiscyra, along the Thermodon river. They are also associated with an area even further to the north, known in antiquity as Scythia, which was known for its nomadic and rather non-Greek cultures. Our earliest full description of the area is from the historian Herodotus, who devotes a long discussion that is essentially an ethnography, that is, an account of other cultures. In this area, among the Scythians proper, who use the skulls of their enemies as drinking cups, are other non-Greek-like peoples. Here are the Taurians on the modern Crimean peninsula who sacrifice all strangers who visit them. Over there are the Agathirsoi, who live effeminately and sleep with any woman they like, which is supposed to reduce envy and ill will between each other. And over here are the Nelroi, wizards who turn people into wolves. And don't forget the Androphagoi, the man-eaters, who are lawless savages who eat other humans. It is among these other strange people, Herodotus tells us, that the Amazons settled. They had done so after losing to the Greeks, and as they were being transported back to Greece, rebelled and threw the Greek crew overboard. But the Amazons were, like the Dothraki, good at horsewomanship, but were not sailors, so they were borne away by winds and waves to the northern reaches along the Mayotis Sea, the marshy bay at the very northeastern side of the Black Sea, fed by the Tana'is or the modern Don River. There, they raided the local Scythian peoples and killed quite a few of them, earning the name Oyorpata, or man-killer in the Scythian language. When the locals learned that they were women, they wanted them to bear their children, Presumably because any kids born from them would be awesome fighters and warriors. So eventually, some of them intermarried and settled even further north, becoming another group called the Sarmatians. At the end of this account, Herodotus adds the detail that a young woman could not marry until she had killed an enemy in battle. So, the Amazons are warriors, first and foremost. And contrary to the movie Wonder Woman, ancient Amazons were decidedly not opposed to Ares, the god of war but in fact were deeply committed to him and his trade of bloody warfare. So close, in fact, is the relationship that some Amazons were said in antiquity to be daughters of Ares. And here's a description of the Amazons as the Argonauts, the subject of our next several episodes, land ever so briefly at the mouth of the Thermodon River.
1: Here, once upon a time, the hero Heracles ambushed the daughter of Ares, Melanippe, as she came out of her home. Queen Hippolyta put her flashing war belt in his hands as ransom, and he returned her sister unharmed.
0: The author, the poet Apollonius, continues, explaining why the Argonauts made haste away from the area.
1: Else they would have remained there and mixed in battle with the Amazons, and the contest would not have been bloodless. For the Amazons living around the plain of Doius were by no means gentle and paid justice no honor. Instead, they are devoted to terrible violence and to the deeds of Ares especially since they are a race descended from Ares and the nymph Harmonia, who bore to Ares' daughters in love with battle, after she lay with him in the valley of the Acmonian grove.
0: There is even a highly unique version that placed an earlier race of Amazonian women in modern day Libya in North Africa, on a utopian island in the middle of a lake, where there was an abundance of natural resources and animals, and before the cultivation of grain it is our most extensive discussion of Amazonian culture. Here, the women had preeminence, and gender roles were completely reversed. The women remained virgins while they took part in military expeditions, and after that time was up, they would mate with the men, who would take care of the kids while mom was holding public office or some other important post. If the baby was a girl, they would cauterize the right breast because it gets in the way of shooting with bows and arrows or tossing a spear. In fact, The story regarding the breast is probably the result of a Greek etymology. The word mazdon means breast, and when you add an A to the beginning of a word, it makes it negative. So Amazon, the Greeks explain, means without a breast. Anyways, the Amazons were so good at war that they conquered most of North Africa, modern day Lebanon and Syria, and even got into Asia Minor before they were driven back. The remnants of this group of Amazons were then finished off by Heracles, not in Themyscira, but in Libya. This is the version by an author named Diodorus of Sicily, who took it from an earlier source, one that's known for his inventive versions. So it's probably safe to say that even the ancient Greeks would have been surprised by this specific version, a rather fanciful invention of an active mind. Even so, the identification of Amazons as living in a utopia resonated with later authors and helped form the idea that a race of women can exist in, and can create, the ideal and progressive environment. However, not every ancient author accepted the reality of a race of warrior women. They were mythical. Here is the account of an ancient geographer and historian named Strabo, which also shows how the Greeks might tease out a difference between what they considered mythical and what they considered historical.
3: A peculiar thing has happened in the case of the account we have of the Amazons, for our accounts of other peoples keep a distinction between the mythical and the historical elements. For the things that are ancient and false and monstrous are called myths, but history wishes for the truth, whether ancient or recent, and contains no monstrous element, or else only rarely. But as regards the Amazons, the same stories are told now as in early times, though they are marvelous and beyond belief. For instance, who could believe that an army of women, or a city, or a tribe, could ever be organized without men, and not only be organized, but even make inroads upon the territory of other people, and not only overpower the peoples near them to the extent of advancing as far as what is now Ionia, but even send an expedition across the sea as far as Attica? For this is the same as saying that the men of those times were women, and that the women were men.
0: It's time to circle back to where we began, with the ways in which movie makers, comic strip writers, and novelists have adapted Greek myths in a variety of ways. We refer to the reuse, adaptation, and redeployment of old ideas, including myth, by a technical word, reception. So the reception of Greek myths is the way that later folks, including both the ancient Greeks and us today, reuse the stories of the Greeks and Romans. And the study of the reception is usually less about the original sources themselves and focuses on the particular political or cultural currents that are in play when the reuse occurs. So the Amazons have become avatars, so to speak, to support or challenge lots of issues, including foreignness, gender breaking, savagery, nobility, East-West divisions, matriarchal societies, male fantasies, socialism, and of course, feminism. One such reuse of the Amazon myth was created in 1915 by Charlotte Perkins Gilman, a serialized novel called Her Land. The full novel wasn't published as a whole in her lifetime, and it was not until 1979 that it was republished as a standalone book, the editor of which called it a, quote, lost feminist utopian novel. Even so, this novel may have inspired, if not Marston himself, at least his feminist partners. In the novel, three men, a playboy, a hopeless romantic, and a sociologist with the standard sexist mindset of his day, stumble on an all woman nation in a faraway place as they are out on a very male adventure. Although the region is not specified, its setting is eerily like a tropical rainforest, and there are lots of resonances with the area around the Amazon river, which itself got its name from early European explorers or rather exploiters who in 1541 heard about a group of warlike women, reminding them of the Amazons of Greek myth. That's where the name of the river comes from. But back to Herland. When the three men hear about a nation of women who live on a mountaintop, they set out on a full expedition. On their initial fly over the land, they notice the cultivated crops and orchard, the well-built road network and carefully laid out town, evoking the most masculine of the three of them to exclaim, There must be men! And yet, when they march into town, they find no men, only a band of women, who easily manhandle, or rather womanhandle, them into a building where they are anesthetized. Without going too deeply into the plot, the men are given comfortable arrangements and are given a tutor to show them the cultural ways of her land. And in the process, the normal assumptions of gender expectations are turned entirely on their heads, with much of the focus being on how Terry, the uber-masculine type, has trouble dealing with the reversal of power. Now, while Gilman was advancing a strong form of feminism, she was also deeply racist, holding the views that whites were biologically superior to blacks and was outspokenly xenophobic and anti-Semitic. Even if her works were to help the suffragist movement in the early 20th century, they were designed to elevate white women, not women of color or immigrant women or Jewish women. She was also a supporter of eugenics, which was based on the absurd notion that people of Northern European stock were genetically superior. So even though her land may have justly turned gender norms on their heads, it's a far cry from the rallying call to real justice and equality across the board. Let's end this episode by considering a historical question that is related to the ancient Greek myths of the Amazons, and which is itself a form of reception. In a somewhat recent book, the scholar Adrian Mayer made a huge splash by forcefully arguing that the stories of the Amazons in myth were actually reflections of a real nation of women warriors that were located roughly where the Greeks tells us they were, in Scythia. And when I say a huge splash, I mean it. Google real Amazons and you'll get a slew of results from 2014 when her book, The Amazons, Lives and Legends of Warrior Women Across the Ancient World, appeared with countless headlines claiming archaeological proof that the Amazons were real. You'll also see headlines from the past year or two, as further archaeological discoveries seem to indicate the existence of women who were, first and foremost, warriors. For instance, in 2017, Armenian researchers reported on a tomb with the remains of a woman in her 20s, who seemed to have died from an arrow which was still lodged in her leg. A study of her bones also suggested that she rode horses. At the end of 2019, another discovery of four women, ages ranging from the teens to the 40s, were buried with a cache of weapons, and that was reported as proof positive that there was a nation of warrior women. Now, there's a lot of good stuff in the book, and it's thorough. Mayer calls it an encyclopedia of Amazonian knowledge, and that it is. And I'm even willing to grant, for the sake of argument, that these archaeological contexts may show that women fought alongside men in the nomadic steppes of Western Russia in the ancient period. However, and I think it's a big however, it is a massive leap to suggest that Greek storytellers were reflecting knowledge of real women warriors that they had somehow met or seen in battle. And, more importantly, even if there were female warriors on horseback, They were probably part of what Mayer calls an egalitarian society where men and women were considered equal. And we should clearly state here that this itself is a giant claim based entirely on the physical remains in some tombs. It is quite possible that a woman who rode horses received a womb from an arrow not in the context of war, and one could think of a number of reasons why weapons could have been placed in a tomb of women, especially one with ornate headdress indicative of a queen. But even if the Scythian culture was egalitarian, and featured some women warriors, that still does not explain the varied stories that the Greeks told about them, and it certainly does not explain the evolution into a woman-only nation of warriors. To take an analogy, even if Heracles was a real person, he certainly did not kill a multi-headed snake, a lion with invulnerable skin, or cleaned out stables of crap that had built up over many years. Greek myth simply cannot be reduced to history. Before we head to the exit, let me recommend another book for lovers of Wonder Woman in the comics. It's called Wonder Woman Unbound, The Curious History of the World's Most Famous Heroine. It takes readers through many different ways that Wonder Woman was depicted throughout the different periods, from the golden age of comics to the present day, though it, like Mayer's book, came out in 2014 before the most recent movies. Well, that's it for another episode of The Greek Myth Files, and we hope that you enjoyed it. We certainly enjoyed making it. As always, I want to thank our voice actors, A.J. O'Neill and Julia Summer for their readings of our ancient and modern texts, as well as Samantha Kutzia, our sound engineer, who put it all together, and contributed to the readings as well. Thanks also go to Alina Podgurski, who created the original art for our show tile, and to Jared Sims, whose Brooklyn Tea serves as our theme music. Go buy his music that sims with one M. This has been the Greek Myth Files, signing off just for a little while. See you next time.